Hi, welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. And this week we're joined by John Seifer. Uh, he is a, a near 30-year veteran of the CIA, focused mostly, I think if not exclusively, you can correct me if I'm wrong, on Russia. He worked in Moscow. He worked back at Langley as, I think, the Deputy Director or Head of Russia House, which is the division dedicated to U.S. intelligence on Russian Federation. Uh, and he's one of the foremost experts. You've seen him in, on CNN, MSNBC, commenting on the counterintelligence madness that has gripped the country for the last half decade, um, particularly with the uh, election of Donald Trump and the attendant Mueller investigation. John, welcome to the program. And I invited you on because we're actually kind of breaking some news, I suppose. As you know, as some of the listeners know, I run a project at the Free Russia Foundation called the Lubyanka Files, which is the translation and curation of a tranche of uh, old KGB training manuals, or what they refer to internally as special disciplines. So in other words, the textbooks used to train up what were then the officers of the first chief directorate of the KGB, or now SVR, and I guess even FSB domestic intelligence officers. And these manuals are still very relevant because I have it on good authority that they're in curricular use as we speak. You don't reinvent the wheel once you've reinvented it the first time. So, you know, all of the theory and tradecraft is there. So sort of this is the curation part of this project. Um, who better to, than to bring somebody well-versed in counterintelligence and Russian espionage than a former CIA veteran to talk about the subject of this particular manual is what's known as confidential contacts. And this was a designation the KGB had for people who were not what you might call controlled agents. So in other words, not somebody who's been recruited to commit crimes against their country by leaking classified intelligence or compromising national security. These are essentially liaisons. They have been vetted, they have been cultivated, but they're people that Russian or then Soviet intelligence officers would simply meet on a regular basis and kind of pump for information. In informal, casual conversations of a provocative and edifying nature, whether it's scuttlebutt about US foreign policy or rumored secrets of the private and professional lives of high-ranking U.S. officials and so on. And so I've droned on a bit long here, but John, welcome to the program. And this is something you and I talk about offline all the time, typically in relation to a lot of the stuff that has dominated the headlines in the last half decade, particularly the Trump-Russia investigation, the Mueller report. Many people see that report as a damp squib, not very high on counterintelligence, a little too high on the legalistic criminal aspects of things. I sent you some extracts from this manual, which really kind of couch all of this world of confidential context in a, a kind of gray zone of ambiguity, right? These are not spies we're talking about. They're informant pluses, right? These are people that are known to the KGB and in most cases knew that they were talking to or working with KGB officers, even if they came under the guise of being diplomatic representatives. But I want you to talk about how dangerous and compromising confidential contacts can be, even though technically they're not committing any crimes in their countries, right? They're, these are not people that the FBI can throw away under the Espionage Act or for, you know, betraying state secrets. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me go back to your sort of bio of me, just yep. to make a distinction on the difference between how Russians approach espionage and how Americans do, for example. So yes, I was in Moscow. I did work on Russian things. But in a 30-year career in CIA, if you expect to be to move up through senior leadership and management, you don't really focus on expertise. In the American system, you're meant to get a breadth of experience. And so I've worked in Asia and South Asia and in mm -hmm. Europe and in North Europe and, and, and you know, that's and then in headquarters and on domestic things with the FBI and counterintelligence. And so you as you move into leadership, 
you're meant to be doing a variety of things. So in a sense, expert, there are people who, who are experts, but they often are not the ones who sort of rise through the ranks and it's not as much of a career move. Whereas in Russia, in the former KGB, in the Soviet times, in the Russia times, you know, if you're an American targets expert or if you're someone who works on Nordic issues or China or whatever, your career may, is very much one of expertise. You may go to China and then come back to Russia, then go to China again, back to Russia, and then somewhere near China, and whereas our service doesn't work that way. So from the beginning, it sort of shows the difference in how we approach these things. And part of that is because the Russian services and the Soviet services before them have always played a much more central role in Russian foreign policy and Soviet foreign policy. It's a key part of the Russian state. You have a president who is a former KGB officer. Even the way Russians approach intelligence is different than Western services tend to do. For example, you know, we focus so much, and you and I have talked about, you know, what we saw in 2016, 2020, these active measures, the stuff mm-hmm. that Soviets did. And that's the key term, active. The Russian intelligence is different than Western intelligence in the sense that my career and most most Western intelligence services are about collecting intelligence and passing it to professional analysts who then put all of it together with classified and unclassified and secret and not secret material to provide to policymakers to make better policy. Soviet intelligence and Russian intelligence, indeed, they ran spies and they collected intelligence, but they are also involved in some of these different and active things that are much more akin to different parts of foreign policy rather than just intelligence collection. So there's information warfare, there's disinformation, the propaganda, even assassination is part of, of the Russian playbook in these these ways. And so there's a different way of how they do intelligence and how central and important it is, it is to them that's different from us. So as we talk about this, I can talk about sort of the way that we see these things, but we always have to take into account how the Russian view and right. how much more central it is to, you know, espionage is much more central to their way of thinking. Even even the society is more sort of conspiratorial in nature. Right. And, you know, even during the Soviet days, people had to keep friendships and cell structures and keep secrets from outside and all of these kind of things. And, and whereas intelligence in the West and in the United States is, it's a value add, it's part of the foreign policy process, but it's not something that most Americans have an instinct for or think about all the time, which is different from where the Russians did it. Are you clear up some of the um, kind of systemic differences of how we do things versus how they do things uh, quite well. What I like about this particular manual, and again, this is coming from the horse's mouth. This is not, you know, trying to assess a foreign threat based on their behavior. This is their doctrine in black and white. We tend to get focused on who's been arrested, what have they been charged with, who's been spied on domestically as a possible counterintelligence threat. So, you know, Carter Page and the notorious FISA surveillance mm-hmm. of him, the, the fact that he was a target for recruitment by the SVR, as we know from an unsealed court grand jury indictment or complaint, I think. And then the fact that he traveled so much to Moscow. But nobody really, I think, is seriously suggesting a guy like that is a spy. There are these, these other gradations, right? These other categories that historically the Russians have used to kind of couch people that they rely on for information or people they rely on to disseminate information or people that they even rely on to try and manipulate things or influence policy. Confidential contacts, the way it's described in the manual, you know, they either know that they're dealing with Russian intelligence. Again, it could be somebody pretending to be from TASS, who's really KGB. It could be, uh, you know, somebody from a trade mission or even a, a Soviet diplomat at the time. But there's a presumption that the person they're talking to realizes they're, sh- they're about to share information, however informal, with a Russian intelligence officer. But the key here is 
these are not people who are being recruited. So in other words, they're not going to be paid for information. You're not going to see them, you know, kind of in a trench coat crossing a bridge and, and doing some kind of dead drop. It's not that kind of relationship. So what kinds of people are we talking about? We're talking about politicians who could very easily under the sort of the, the guise of their own official work be meeting with all sorts of foreigners and sharing scuttlebutt or having casual conversation in the course of which they let something slip that might be of use to a hostile intelligence service. They talk about journalists, they talk about sort of cultural influencers in, in Western society. Going through Mueller, going through the Senate subcommittee report on the Russian interference campaign, what jumps out at me is I see a bunch of confidential contacts at least as so far as I can, rather than controlled agents. I'm wondering if you could talk about the distinctions as understood to yourself and to to the CIA. Sure. Let me start by saying that, again, this is sort of the difference between the Western and the Russian way of of doing espionage is in my career, if you're going to move up through the clandestine services called the director of operations now in CIA, for example, you get credit, which is part of the process of recruiting sources by recruiting fully controlled sources, which means the people that are spying for you know they're spying for the United States government. They're actively following your direction. They're stealing secrets. They're keeping themselves secret. They're following your direction so that the relationship is secret. They're making sure that you know the communication is something that is directed by the CIA case officer so that it's protected and secret and never seen. And so these are fully controlled, you know, we would call spies, like this meeting on a dark street corner, passing microfiche or whatever, you know, kind of thing. That's, and that's how, you know, we get credit. We also in CIA have sort of these type of terms for things less than that, Mm -hmm. confidential contacts, witting collaborators, but it's often that we're meeting these people in the process of trying to move them up that food chain to be fully controlled assets. The Russians have had a much more long-term and sophisticated way of looking at intelligence uh, and they're much more patient. This goes to all forms of, you know, U.S. foreign policy, for example. In our world, it's very, um, we're very sort of uh, demand-driven and driven by what's in the newspapers. And so, you know, if I'm developing a relationship with someone, a, a country that's not of great importance to the United States right now, I am dissuaded from doing that to focus on, you know, what are the top issues? There's, right. You're told you need to work on China or Iran or whatever they are type of things. Whereas the Russians have a you know a longer term approach, they have it's more central to their foreign policy. They're almost they almost are as diplomats as well as spies. And so get, let me get to this confidential contact mm. issue. All right, so I talked about what controlled assets are, the kind of thing that you know full blown spy. Um, a confidential contact in the in the Russian sense is someone who is being met by a Russian intelligence officer and providing something of value to the to Russian foreign policy either to one of these active things that providing some sort of pushing the Russian narrative and or providing information that helps in their foreign or military policy. But what's interesting about that is you might try to say, well, that's just normal. Like you said, a journalist talking to a diplomat, how is that something that is dangerous? Well, it's dangerous in the sense that, number one, it's defined by the intelligence service. They think this person is important and providing information that's of value to them, right? So you're helping a foreign power and in many ways an enemy power. Number two is it isn't just a friendly casual relationship. It's something that is tailored and driven by the Russian side. So they're doing traces on your background. They're targeting you. They're looking at who you talk to, who are your friends. They're doing investigative work. They are preparing specific questions. So when you're talking to them, it might seem that they're asking sort of random normal questions in conversation, but they're trying to work you to getting a specific piece of information that they need. This is a focused 
intelligence-driven effort. So the person, the target may be, see this as I'm chatting with somebody here, but that person is coming well-armed to, to try to get the maximum out of you. Also, it's on a continuum. When you meet someone, even when we meet someone, target someone to try to assess them and see if they're going to be eventually a controlled source, there's a long period of time in there where you're meeting the person, you're developing a relationship with them, you're assessing what access they have, you're assessing what kind of person they are, you're looking at their ego, you're looking at what makes them tick, what motivations they have, positive and negative, and you're moving them along this continuum. You're always trying to move them step by step so that at some point they cross, they cross a threshold where they're actually working on your behalf more than and they're and eventually coming closer and closer to you. So even though these Russian, the people that Russians are meeting are called confidential sources, they're not fully controlled assets. The Russians are step by step, meeting by meeting, trying to slowly move you in that direction. Right. In our training, we used to say, as you develop a relationship with someone and you start pushing, try to get more and ask more questions, you look at it like a traffic light, you know, a red, yellow, green. As long as you're asking questions and sort of pushing your agenda, as long as you get a green light, you keep pushing your agenda. And if you get a yellow light, you might back up and try to go a different way to get where you want to go. And if you get a red light, you, you stop. So right. this is what the, Rus the Russians are doing too. So yes, it's a confidential contact. It may not be illegal in the country they're in. You're simply talking to a foreign representative, but that person is, is slowly trying to, number one, get information that they've tailored that they need for their foreign policy, but also slowly push that person, hoping that they'll eventually cross a line by after which they're becoming more and more under some version of control. This is the danger. It's not that it's just, you know, the, the Russians are, are just defining these people in their benefits so they can get some sort of bureaucratic credit in Moscow. Perhaps there's some of that. But it is, it's a professional intelligence service using these people for their benefit and also maintaining them in a stable of of others so that they can put together sort of the jigsaw puzzle and move these along so that some become controlled sources and some merely provide information that is of value to them or fill some sort of need in yeah. interactive measures of their propaganda process. I'm always fascinated, though, by the, the specificity of the terms that are used, at least from the Russian side. So mm -hmm. agent of influence, for instance, is a, another term of art and, and espionage. Yeah. I remember interviewing years ago Oleg Kalugin, you know, the, the famous, I guess you wouldn't call him a defector. He just retired, but he retired in great hostility against the, the government. <laughs> and he was telling me, you know, there's a controversy surrounding various histories, biographies written of I.F. Stone, you know, the famous radical mm -hmm. journalist who was also very pro-Soviet until he started to go wobbly in 56 when the Soviet Union invaded Hungary, but then he kind of came back into the fold. 68, though, the invasion of Czechoslovakia seemed to him the scales fell from his eyes. And Kalugin was describing a scene, you know, Kalugin was a task correspondent with a famous cover for a lot of KGB mm -hmm. guys working in Washington, going out to lunch with I.F. Stone and sort of, you know, pressing him for scuttlebutt about what's going on in the Hill, you know, which politicians are more hawkish, which are pro-detente, that kind of thing. Until finally in 68, at some point, Stone said, I, I'm ending this relationship. He got up and walked out of the diner or whatever. Now, in the McTrokin archive, you, Stone, I think, is, is described as an agent of influence with, you know, the code name, I think, was something like Pancake Blin in Russian. Where do you draw the line? I mean, what is the difference between a confidential contact and an agent of influence? Because an agent of influence is not somebody, I mean, would you describe them as being controlled. They're certainly being pushed and manipulated, but they're free to go at any time and they're not ten they don't tend to break laws in their own country, right? The way that we defined the CIA in American mm -hmm. espionage parlance, an agent of influence is an asset who's simply in position to change or impact policies that, uh -huh. that benefit or help the United States on the US behalf. So for example, if I'm running someone and I have a spy in a in a 
foreign ministry of some country and they move up to a position of influence, perhaps to be the foreign minister or the prime minister, you have a spy like that. That person could certainly be someone who just has continued to provide you updates and information so you have insight into what's going on in policy. But they're also now in a position to actually take action, to convince others, to move in ways, to take policies that benefit the United States. So an agent of influence is someone who can influence things on your behalf. So it's an interventionist role as opposed to data collection of the Yes, right. And like I mentioned before, because the Russian security services are much more involved in this of this variety of tasks other than just data collections, intel collection. They're, take, they're involved in disinformation. They're involved in propaganda. They're involved in pushing certain narratives. They're involved in, you know, we've seen these cyber attacks, like we talked about assassinations. We've talked about all these different things that are active. Someone like I.F. Stone, if, if they believe that they're talking to him and they're, they're convincing him, they're getting ideas into his head that he is then putting out in his reporting and his stories, that's an agent of influence. He's pushing Soviet Russian narratives to their right. benefit. And other terms that fit into this, as we've seen when we talked about Trump and others and Giuliani and recently some of the people related to Mueller, you know, there's terms from Soviet period of time where you talked about uh, useful idiots and fellow travelers. And right. these are all sort of on that continuum, that spectrum of people that are helping helping the Russian narrative, helping the Russian foreign policy in some way. Some are controlled sources that are spying and stealing, you know, secrets. Some of them are providing information that help them tailor you know, uh, cyber attacks. Some of them are people who are, are simply, you know, sharing information and they're getting it into some of their, their writing and things. Some of them might be somebody like Rudy Giuliani, where people are talking to him about things. And then as he's talking on the phone to the president, he's saying these things. And, and some of these sort of Russian talking points are getting into the getting into the president's mind or other people's mind to be used for. So there's a, such a variety of things. And the Russians are very savvy about being comfortable using all of those. They're, they're comfortable using people who are unwitting of what's happening, comfortable of using people who are just, you know, sort of pro anti-West, anti-American, you know, against them. And then they're, or using, you know, full-blown spies. And so the thing that's different about the, the Russian is that it's central part of their foreign policy. Mm. And actually domestic policy when you get right. onto it strengthening too. Whereas in the West, it's it's a value add to foreign policy, military policy. So you know. Yeah, I mean, even today in, in Putin's Russia, you know, if, if an American were to go and start chatting up FSB officers, you know, <laughs> he's gonna have some unflattering attention called to himself and he could very well be arrested on, on just on the basis of that, right? It doesn't matter that it's just an informal, casual chat. So the Russians are past masters at exploiting our own civil liberties and our own freedoms oh, yeah. to manipulate the, the terrain and also to create these kind of ambiguities. And researching my book and studying the kind of history of the Cold War, one thing that comes to light is it takes decades to figure out what was really going on. Just because you don't have a, an indictment or a prosecution, you know, and so many of these people might not even classify as agents because they weren't in government service, right? They didn't have secrets to steal or to share. They didn't sign a, a clearance form that made them, in, you know, in breach of it. However, that's not to say that they were not acting to the benefit and at the service of a hostile foreign country. For me, trying to piece together, forget even Trump-Russia, but just the, the general kind of aspects of Russian interference in Western countries and in, in American democracy. Suddenly you're looking at a cast of characters that is much, much larger than even what we've been reading about in the New York Times and the Washington Post for the last five years, right? You're looking at, I mean, all of these guys who met with CEOs of major Russian banks, including CEOs who had KGB or Soviet intelligence backgrounds, Natalia Veselnitskaya going to Trump Tower with Rinat Akmeshin, a guy who was in the KGB and Soviet intelligence, 
during the Cold War and is now, quote, retired. But the fact that he gets a meeting with Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, and Donald Trump Jr., suddenly we begin to see that this is a much more kind of mushy, amorphous world than we might be led to believe by, you know, kind of turning on the television and expecting, right, you know, everyone's going to be Alger Hiss. It doesn't quite work that way. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, and we've seen, you know, the Russians in 2016 and 2020 be able to sort of, wep- as you talked about, sort of weaponize the First Amendment. They're able to use our civil liberties and our systems against us. And that's part of their collection is to understand the weaknesses in our system so they can exploit them and use them to their benefit. You talked about, yeah, using a variety of sources. Look at what, you know, the Russian illegals that were arrested in 2010, the kind of people that they were talking to and meeting. And, you know, a lot of them were, like I mentioned before, you know, sort of on the fringes of things, maybe with a much more longer term. If I'm in CIA and I meet someone who's a researcher at a university and, you know, wherever, what country am I in, and they don't have any access to intelligence, Washington's going to tell me to stop meeting that person. That's, right. That person is not of great interest to us. You know, your job is to recruit spies who have information that this White House needs right now. Right. Whereas the Russians, because of the way, you know, they came from the Bolshevik party and this communist countries weren't recognized by European powers or great powers that they had to sort of build this sort of, and, and because they often used the communist party to get these relationships, they spread a much wider net. And, and as you pointed out, people, yeah. because they tend to be geographically designated or trained up for certain cultures and countries, you know, they could be stationed in, in one country for 10, 20 years, right? I mean, somebody who's a low level intern or researcher in that time period could advance to be on the National Security Council. So it pays to invest in kind of the small. Or there's another term of art that we yep. use, that the Russians use, I'm not exactly what the Russian term is, you may know, called access agents. And so if you say these illegals are meeting people at the fringes at Harvard and sort of in the policy making outer sphere, they may not have access to secrets now. You're right, one reason to recruit them is they may in the future. Right. But these people also can serve what, what we would call access agents their eyes and ears to others that we might be able to recruit. So if I'm an American and I'm going into a new society and I might be being watched by that local counterintelligence service to meet people, me going into their foreign ministry, me going in to meet people, it's sort of a blunt force object. I might be able to meet someone, I might be able to recruit them. Maybe people don't pay attention to that. But if I have someone who we recruited a long time ago who works in that area, they don't provide great secret information, but they're in that, they're friends with people, they're in that social sphere. They can come back and report biographic information, they can report atmospheric information, they can, report, they can tell me, okay, who in this group, who in this office, who in this you know, bar drinks too much, who is you know, sleeping with who, who talks too much, who has a huge ego. These are people that are spying for us. They're not stealing the secrets. They're telling us what is out there and who we should go after. So when it comes time for us to target and go after specific sources, we're much better armed. Yeah. Think about Maria Butina. In this I was sense. just going to so, bring right? her up. Yeah. So you have a Russian woman who people are interested in, and she's in this world with the NRA and these sort of Republican-y think tank groups. And you know she's sleeping with some of them, and she's going to all their parties. If I'm in the Russian embassy, this is the kind of information. Come in and sit down with me. Talk. Let's let's talk through all the people you know and who who they might know and you know who this kind of stuff. And then you can ask them, hey, this this person you mentioned that was a friend of a friend, can you get in a relationship with them? And then tell me next time what it is they know. Is this some the kind of person we might be able to go after? So if I'm the Russian intelligence officer sitting back in the embassy, I can sit back, wait, collect, and then figure out, okay, where's the best place to use my limit, you know, my limited resources and my targeted focus to go after. There's sources that sometimes you recruit for one purpose that can provide other things for you. So talking to journalists, you might be trying to get your narrative into their 
head and into their papers. You might be trying to get information. You might be able to trying to figure out who do they know and their friends. And even just the gossip about who they like and dislike and who's sleeping with who and all these kind of things is all benefit beneficial to an intelligence service, which is collating all of this, putting together with other information from satellites and diplomats and, and military attaches and things to, 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 for, for the purpose of that country's intelligence and foreign policy. And I mean, is it not the case that, you know, oftentimes you see people indicted and then prosecuted, convicted and jailed for non-espionage related crimes, uh, perjury to the FBI being a classic example. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the subtext of this is the FBI knew that this person was doing something like that, either acting as, I mean, in Maria Boutina's case, I think it was, she was an unregistered foreign lobbyist. I think it was described as espionage light. That's the kind of term of art used for that indictment. Not a spy, but I think the Russian term was instead of access agent, it's recruiter agent, right? Somebody who would introduce a, a Russian intelligence officer to somebody who was susceptible or amenable to being cultivated and then ultimately run by the service. If you've seen or you've read the uh, the spy who came in from the cold when Alex Lemus comes out of prison and that guy claiming to be from the prisoner's aid society wants to buy him a fancy lunch and give him like a, a check for a hundred pounds or something. That's a recruiter agent, right? Not a KGB officer himself, but somebody who's going to make an introduction or is told go out and make first contact with somebody we have an eye on. So in a way, John, I mean, it's funny because the sort of meta narrative of everything you know, coming out of the, with the Trump administration in the rearview mirror is, where was the big reveal, right? It's, it, this was so anticlimactic, nobody really went to prison for being a spy, or there was no direct line between Trump Tower, or I guess the White House and Moscow. But again, actually, it, it pays to be even more <laughs> paranoid or more suspicious, given, as we say, we've only seen kind of the tip of the pyramid, but the base of the pyramid consists of these more nebulous kind of half in, half out recruiter agents or confidential contacts, or I suppose even agents of influence who, who, who were never going to go to prison because they didn't technically commit a crime. Yeah, so counterintelligence, counterespionage, the work that the FBI does, they're under-resourced and it's very difficult work. So first of all, you have to understand, look at the Venona project that came out in, uh, in the late 90s about the, just the wartime effort to decrypt some of the, the Soviet communications. In that short little bit of, maybe 5% of their sort of back and forth traffic we were able to de decode, we uncovered tons of Americans who were spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. And this is when we were allies. However, if you look at that list of people that you now know for sure were, were spying on behalf of the Soviet Union, a small percentage of those ever were arrested or prosecuted. And anyone who's, who's spent a career in counterintelligence would say the same thing, that you know, most people who spy or very confident they're spying are either pushed out of positions or whatever, we're not able to actually take it and prosecute. To put together a case to prove someone is spying usually means you have to catch them red-handed. And usually to catch somebody red-handed, you have to have, they always say, for example, we have that phrase, it takes them all to catch them all. Right. So it might be our spy inside the KGB that says, Michael Weiss is spying. Here's what he's given us. Here's how we're meeting him. He's providing dead drops. He's putting them here. He's putting them there. And then the FBI can put together, can follow you, watch you, see what you're stealing and put together a case. And perhaps in that case, you could actually arrest someone. I was involved in the Hansen arrest. And I can remember very clearly being with the FBI and the Justice Department talking to them and their Justice Department is saying, you got to catch him red-handed, even though we had provided enough detail where anyone, my mother, front page Washington Post, if I'd put this in front of you, you'd say this guy is an absolute treasonous traitor spy against the United States. The Justice Department was like, no, nope, you got to catch him red-handed. And now, in this case, they did because they were on to him. They had sources who were on to him. Think about when you talk about the, all of these other people tied to the 
you know, we, we often look at the Mueller and the Trump you know, grouping. First of all, uh, you're not going to catch them unless you have specific information to catch them red-handed. By the time this information came out and became public and the Mueller investigation is going on, all these things are happening. Even if there was people along that continuum where the Russians were looking to recruit and run, by the time it came public, they were going to stop. So you were never going to catch them red-handed after this this period of <laughs> was going on, even if during the campaign, they were taking actions consistent with someone who was moving down the path towards espionage or moving down the path towards being a controlled source, or like you said, simply providing a benefit in other words, you know, earlier on on that continuum. Even if the FBI looks at them and says, here's what's happening. They're meeting a foreign intelligence agent. You know, they're trying to get into the campaign. They did not rebuff this. They did not report these things. Uh, and in fact, when asked about it, they lied about these things. And then perhaps even, you know, you saw the re- obstructed justice and, and tried yeah. to take down anyone who could hold them accountable. So they, even if they fit that pattern, again, that's not wholly illegal. It's not, you're not able to take that to prosecution. That doesn't mean it's not amazingly damaging or what's going on. So the, you're dealing with a professional intelligence service. The secrets, the information, what we call evidence, is in a safe in Moscow. Like, and so unless you have someone who can get the things out of that safe, you can put together quite a pattern of activity. You can put together a theory that may or may not be you know, largely true, but you can't prove it. This is a problem when you're dealing with a professional espionage organization whose job is to hide, obfuscate, you know, keep secret what they're up to. You're only going to see pieces of things if you're looking at them, unless you're tremendously lucky. And sometimes we're lucky, but And even if you can prove it, oftentimes being able to prove it in a court of law means compromising even more sources. Yes, that's right. George Blake, the the famous Soviet mole in in the UK, recently died in Moscow, where he'd been, Mm -hmm. I think it was 90-something years ago. Yeah, and we we had an exchange with a few other sort of spy watchers on Twitter about, this is the guy who most likely burned Oleg Penkovsky, which is famously the spy who saved the world, because Blake happened to have served at the same time, I think it was in Germany, with the MI6 station chief, who was responsible for overseeing Penkovsky in Moscow. So he will have burned Murray Chisholm, went over to the Soviet side. And Chisholm's wife also worked in the MI6 office. So Blake knew that. So when they moved to Moscow and handled Penkovsky, the Soviets knew that Chisholm the, the male was a was a MI6 officer, but they also knew the wife worked. So normally they might not pay attention to the spouse and the kids, but in this case, the British were using the spouse to make the meetings and contact and dead drops and her brush passes with Penkovsky. Well, I remember, you know, the Ben McIntyre book about Gordievsky and Aldra James, right? I mean, I guess the point we're getting at is counterintelligence can affect intelligence. The Brits were running this super Soviet source who turned, who was nearly going to be chief of station in London, or I think deputy chief of station. He was just about to be promoted before they had to pull him back to Moscow. But because the Americans wanted to find out who MI6 had, they assigned Aldra James, who was then in counterintelligence, to try and piece this together. Of course, Aldra James was a, a Soviet spy the entire time. So you cannot just go after somebody on the basis that, hey, they're compromising U.S. national security, or hey, you know, in this case, they are committing a crime by betraying their country when they've got security clearance without also affecting sources that you have in the field who might be even more valuable, giving you information that you simply cannot forfeit, right? If I have a source in the SVR who's providing the information that's writing counter espionage leads, you know, Americans or British rather who are spying, oftentimes they're getting snippets of pieces because, you know, compartmentation, even within a professional intelligence service. I have friends, they might have worked in the same office, but they didn't know all the cases that were going on in that office you know, right. because we keep need to know. And so when you have a source like that, to be able to then, if you take one piece of it and use it for, like you said, for 
public or take to a trial, you might be blowing that source. That person may has to come out and then you may be losing decades further of knowledge or or things or putting together pieces for you. So, and and many times the government chooses not to move forward. You know, it's better if I think Michael Weiss is spying to maybe move Michael out of that position so he does less harm or keep an eye on him as opposed to prosecute. Yeah. And I mean, you know, one of the other things, Andrei Soldatov, the Russian journalist who writes about uh, the security state in Mm -hmm. Russia, writes very well about it, said, look, you have to keep in mind a lot of these KGB guys, you alluded to this earlier, and certainly a lot of the SVR guys now will have these confidential contacts. Really, they're, you know, they're going out to coffee or drinks or dinner with somebody, having an informal chat. And then because they have quotas to fill, how many people did you recruit? What kind of intelligence are you getting? Will embellish the role of this confidential contact. So especially journalists, meeting with quote-unquote diplomats and the journalists might be there to get information right these diplomats might be sources right i I need a Mm -hmm. source from moscow to respond to the navalny poisoning or whatever i'm going to go to somebody you know out of the embassy and that somebody out of the embassy could be an svr officer under diplomatic cover and meanwhile he's kicking back to moscow i just met with a journalist from the new york times i'm cultivating this person to see what kind of stuff he or she is willing to tell me so it becomes in a way the bureaucratic self-advancement and opportunism increases the, the, the level of paranoia and increases the, the, the sort of suspiciousness of foreign countries, right? Anybody meeting with somebody who is in any way connected to intelligence automatically becomes scrutinized and you don't know which end is up. Are they there innocuously? Are they there with sinister intent? Or even if they're there innocuously, will we later find out that the service that's been meeting with them has decided to elevate them to some higher level, right? So now they're being classified a controlled agent when in fact they're not. Have you, in your experience, seen that like people get the false rap because the Russians just, they needed to tick the boxes and they decided to turn. Oh yeah. There's, you know, I think if you go through the the, the books from the Matrokin archives and others, there's, there's people, you know, what's, um, what's his name? Who's doing the uh, atomic program that Cal. Oh, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. And there's others that were playing footsie with Russian intelligence officers who were then reporting back and taking this very seriously. Now, whether he was a spy, probably not. But once you're playing footsie, you're playing with fire with these kind of things. Because, you know, there's a t- they get to define, and they're bureaucratic, what they're writing back, how they think of you. Do they think of you as someone who's completely innocent and unwitting? Or do they actually think, okay, hey, I think I'm learning about this person. I think I can start to manipulate their ego. I can provide little gifts, little pieces of information, and then move, like we talked about earlier, move them along this continuum until maybe they cross a line, whether they even realize it or not, so that they're more beneficial to us. So yes, the person, we'll just use the term journalist, who's meeting this Russian intelligence officer, they may think nothing of it, but they are slowly moving along this path. The Russians are defining and writing up this in, in, in a professional intelligence service and espionage service. And they're, they're assessing, they're looking at that person's ego. They're looking how they can take information, how they can take that person's relationship, what motivates that person to sort of move them along. And, or even if there's nothing there, if it truly an up and up relationship, anybody who would watch it, there's nothing there. It's still the Russian is doing because it benefits their foreign policy and they're not a friendly state. So how do you win a spy war against another country where it sounds like we have one hand tied behind our back in terms of what we can do counterintelligence wise? They really don't. I mean, they can throw Paul Whelan in prison and say he's a spy. And really, they're just taking a hostage, somebody to exchange for an actual spy that they sent over here who got caught. You know, during the Cold War, fine that the Soviets had a lot of deficiencies and particularly, you know, 
economic problems that that they had to address. This government, with sanctions that don't seem to be bothering, at least not the inner circle of you know Putin's Kremlin, the aggressiveness doesn't seem to have diminished. Uh, clearly, we've seen you know they have no compunction about trying to murder with a toxic nerve agent the leader of the Russian opposition. And now, according to the latest investigation, they've used that Novichok substance against three other members. How do you fight these guys? And what is the kind of the dance that we have to do between national security and civil liberties. I mean, right now there's all this chatter, there's, all, there's evidence. I mean, social media companies, Silicon Valley, taking down accounts which are responsible for spreading disinformation. Now, one could mount a First Amendment case, they have every right to spread disinformation because you know lying is not a crime. It seems like we're in this kind of dialectic, right? We understand that there are not just the Russians, by the way. I mean, you've got the Chinese, the Iranians, the Saudis, the North Koreans, they're all playing in the mm-hmm. same kind of field against us. And we're just coming out of a presidency that looks to have been at least partially the result of a foreign interference campaign. And we've talked about what is Donald Trump's real relationship with Moscow and how do they see him and how might they have kept him as a sort of agent of influence or confidential contact going back since 1987. How do you go forward as a country? <laughs> you know, what well, first we- of all, in terms of winning spy wars, the United States and the West essentially has to not play that game. We, we don't win spy wars. And if it was just on an equal playing field or a spy versus spy service, we probably would lose some of those wars based on that. We win it because we have so many other elements of power, of soft power, of, of things that appeal to the, the rest of the world. Same on the espionage side. So, you know, most people, if they knew what the Russians had, which is incredible, or the Chinese, and they know what the West has in the United States, espionage-wise, would you trade skill sets or ability to do things? And essentially, the answer has almost always been no, because the thing that we have is we're America or we're the West. We have an open society. We have places that people want to immigrate to. We have, you know, First Amendment, all of these things that, that appeal to the world. Therefore, as an intelligence officer living overseas, I might not have as much background and skill as a spy like the Russians do, who are thinking a conspiratorial way. They have decades of experience. They train longer. They have better language skills oftentimes. But I represent the United States. And when I'm in these countries, there's something more appealing about what the United States is trying to do in the world in terms of pushing forward you know, economic success for others, all these kinds of things. And so representing the United States is my great superpower. It's not that I'm better than the Russian intelligence officer. I succeed because I represent something better than they do. That's why I, for a lot of us that were in the spy business, Trump was a real problem because right. essentially the thing that made us special, he was that he was very interested in taking that away. He's essentially saying, we're no different from anybody else. We need to be more brutal. There's, you know, we don't want immigrants coming here. You know, all of these kinds of, we don't, we don't care about our allies, but those are the things that made us special. The things that made us special when I go to the, all of our partners, whether it's allies, Australians or Brits or French or Finns or Swedes, I'm going to get help. They're going to share things with us. They're going to work together with us on what's going on with Russia, China, and Iran, and other places. And also, our society is more appealing. A lot of those places, have they have family, they have others in the United States. All those kind of things benefit us, and they were being sort of taken away by the Trump administration. And if you're on an equal playing field, and it's just spy versus spy, then some of those places might be better at it, frankly. So American exceptionalism is an element of tradecraft. I like yeah, that. It is. You'd rather be resettled in... Palm Beach than in Nova Sibiu. <laughs> you know, we are big, we are rich, we have developed a culture and it, we're much better. It's by, you know, we, we have, you know, the, a lot of organizations, NSA and FBI and CIA that, that have sort of developed some of these this professionalism and, and we're actually really good at what we do right. nowadays, but our superpower is not spying, it's other things. 
on that note, which I guess is slightly optimistic, but also slightly pessimistic. <laughs> so I like it. We're, we're back to this sort of ambiguity. Well, John, I, I thanks so much for coming on. And just as a kind of point of order, uh, the manual that I, we were alluding to throughout this conversation on confidential contacts is going to be released both in the original Russian form and in a full English translation. So you can check that out at the Free Russia Foundation website. And also we'll tweet it out on the day that we release this podcast. So we're going to sort of, that's the, the manual is the thing. Oh, good. This is the, the curation in lieu of an essay, which I would write trying to dig through McTrokin and some of the texts we've been referring to <laughs> to find like relevant and compelling anecdotes that, that sort of put into practice the theory behind the, uh, the tradecraft and manual. John, it's great to have you on. And I'm sure there's going to be other things to talk about in the big bad world of espionage in future. So it'd be great to have you come back. Yeah, anytime. I really enjoy it. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Take care.